drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Greetings, Earthlings. This is Season 4, Episode 21 of Drive-By Cinema, the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. With me, not physically, although that could have been possible, is my long-suffering co-host, Paul. <laughs> and with me is my equal long-suffering co-host, Richard. Welcome one and all to this festive family fun. Because we met in person just yesterday, did we not? We did, and it was strange to meet people in real life. It's Christmas time for us. By the time you're listening to this podcast, it will be between Christmas and New Year, I think. It'll be time to hop under the mistletoe and kiss your beloved. Paul, Christmas Eve tonight, thank you for sharing Christmas Eve with me. I know you're usually roasting your nuts in front of an open fire. (laughs) (laughs) Roasting my turkey, I've decided to do it tonight and then reheat it tomorrow. So good idea, everybody, what do you think? Let's on a postcard, please. And speaking of nothing is stirring, not even a mouse, I'm just going to set my phone to silent for recording purposes. He's only saying that to remind me to do it. He'd be great in a care home, kind of like uh, caring for, sensitively suggesting things to people with Alzheimer's. What I like to do is give him agency so he thinks he's making decisions. <laughs> we had a competition to let's see who could throw the rubbish in the bin in 10 seconds to account for music. <laughs> so he's very good at that. Really good. Very good. No, listen, I'm afraid that we do have some Q&A to do. Oh, hecky thump. We've had some issues raised. Oh, lordy lordy. These issues were raised in person by us actually meeting some of our regular listeners and occasional I should have been listening, but I was quaffing instead, wasn't I? Stuffing my face. I have to say, that in terms of a sustainability thing, it's not really on that we have to go out and meet our listeners to get their, their corrections. No, no. No. Really, there should be a mechanism by which they can report them. Like email or something? Obviously, if you know either of us, you can contact us directly. But we also have a Discord server, which I will... And it's on our website, but I'll also put it in the show notes for those people who don't know. And that allows you to chat directly to us and level any complaints you may have. Insult us and maybe receive insults back, if you want. Potentially. The first issue that I'm going to... Oh. Issue. I'm going to mention... Sounds serious. From listener Jolien is... Thank you, Jolien. That last week when we were talking about Victoria... Yeah. We mentioned that she had been in a conservatory in, <laughs> in Spain. <laughs> Jolien was very angry. She was a sunflower, the, you know. <laughs> the word is conservatoire, is it not? I mean, yeah, I Technically it is, but isn't there a case for plain English here? Yeah. Well, she's not English. She's a Spanish anyway. So what do they say in Spain? Question. They probably say conservatoire with a Spanish accent, don't they? Oh. Well, maybe that sounds like conservatory. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on your side, Richard, here. Very much so. I mean, I take the correction. Jolly is not just technically correct. He's actually correct. But at the same time, why not say conservatory? Why not say conservatory? I fully agree. I always thought a new Guinness record was a new Guinea record until about the age of 12. <laughs> yeah, but it's quite a bit easier, isn't it, to get a new Guinea record? It is, just jump off a small population. Just jump off a shack with silts with a rope tied to your leg, I think. So it stands, are we going to upstand that upstanding correction and say, yes, it should have been conservatoire. Yes, and my full apologies. Although the joke about it not being a greenhouse stuck on a house wouldn't have worked quite as well, would it? No, 
<laughs> Strangely, we were in a French restaurant last night, and uh, none of us had any trouble with the pronunciation, did we? We weren't really called upon to speak any French. I had we? to guess what a terrine was. I guess right, it was a pâté, which is another French word, but not quite as posh as terrine, is it? What was the thing that Jolien had? That was another unusual French word. That was a tarty tata fleur. Tarty, <laughs> that was a tarty flat, I think, or something like that. Tarty flat. Answer that a postcard, please, Jolien. Brother Jolien, if you don't mind. Okay. The second correction we were delivered yesterday evening from Alistair, actually. Ah, thank you, Brother Alistair. It goes back quite a long way to when we reviewed like. Men, the film, not, not the gender. And Starring Roy Kinnear's son, is that right? Was I listening correctly? Yeah. Starring Roy Kinnear's son in various guises. Now, I had said in that episode that we knew his father because he had a small bit part in Return of the Jedi. Well, that's maybe where you knew him from, but he was on TV all the time in the 70s and 80s. He was a comic actor, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he was in one of the Carry On movies as well, wasn't he? Or maybe several. Most movies. probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, most British actors. All he had British to do was, you know, well, hang around that back street, around the back of the tool works, flash your knickers and you get a part, I think. <laughs> so I'm told that he wasn't in Return of the Jedi. He was in Watership Down. He did. Well, Roy Kinnear. Roy Kinnear, just a voice, though, presumably, because it was an animated film, wasn't it? He was in Return of the Ewok, starring Warwick Davis as himself, in a fictionalised account of how he got the role of Wicket W. Warwick in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> okay. Ah, I think I found the name of the actual guy playing Giran, the Rancor Keeper. Ah, oh, but it's only his voice. So who played the Rancor Keeper physically? That's the question, isn't it? Paul Brook. Ah. There you go. Ah, yeah, okay, it's obviously Paul Brook, clearly. Thank you, Alistair, for that scintillatingly detailed demonstration of knowledge. And what what has Paul Brook been in? He's been all kinds of things. Well, he would have been, yeah. That's the same He's in Oliver Twist, Bridget Jones' Diary, For Your Eyes Only. He was in The Lair of the White Worm. I seem to remember that film. I think it was quite erotic. Was it really? (laughs) So, yeah, anyway, that settles that correction, Paul. And with that, I think we must move swiftly on. They get about these actors, don't they? As I said, with a like £2 ten a tit and a fiver for his ass. (laughs) There we go. All right, let's listen to some beautiful music before we review. On that beautiful note, thank you. Here we go. Now, you wanted to watch the third kind. It wasn't available. wasn't available. You said, Paul, there's a sequel. Don't worry. We can watch the sequel, move back to what would therefore be the prequel of the sequel, the original, and, you know, do it out of order, but we'll get there in the end. So you said, Paul, let's watch the, the fourth kind. Paul, I didn't seriously mean it was a sequel. Disingenuous much, Richard. <laughs> I thought it was quite obviously a humorous comment. The, but there we go. I'll, oh, okay. I'll try and highlight them. Quotation marks... Physical hand quotation marks. Often a good way to do that. Might indicate irony rather than... Slash S. Or the interrobang sometimes used to indicate irony, isn't it? Not in Spain, it's not. What's in Spain? The interrobang is a question mark at the beginning of a sentence in Spain, isn't it? Hmm. No, because you're thinking of an upside down... That's what I'm thinking of. That's what an interrobang is. An interrobang is a combination of an exclamation mark and a question mark. Yeah. It sounds like the twister version of writing. (laughs) 
<laughs> the Twister version. Yeah. Sort of all crossed over each other and <laughs> entangled, though. Entangled. It's hybridised, yeah, it's hybridised, sure. The interrobang is a version of what? The exclamation mark yeah. and the question yeah. mark. Because it's supposed to indicate both a sort of query and an exclamation at the same time. Before I say anything else, I should find out what an interrobang actually looks like. You should save Richard the trouble of describing it. Well, okay. I think you'll find it looks like what I've just said. Oh, right. Okay. It's a bit like the Baskin Robbins logo. There we go. Or like a Bitcoin logo for a really cheap kind of competing currency. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. There we go. The fourth kind, so, Paul. Why is it called the fourth kind? The fourth kind. Couldn't call itself Encounters of the Fourth Kind because it probably could run into copyright. So, what are the four Therefore, different the th- kinds of encounter? The fourth kind, I know, because we're watching a movie <laughs> just now, which is the uh, is alien, alien abduction. abduction. Encounters of the third kind, I imagine, would be alien yes, meetings. Yes, the presence of an of an animated creature, as it were, a humanoid in, robot or a parent. In, in your presence, yeah. right, okay. The second kind of encounter would be... It's physical evidence. It's like having a, a footprint evidence. or a Geiger counter going off. Yeah, something like that. The first kind? A visual sighting. In, of what used to be called an unidentified flying object, but these days is usually called a UAP, or unidentified aerial phenomena, or anomalous phenomena, actually, which makes it much broader, doesn't it? But, so, the fourth kind is indeed all about the subject of abductions. Yes, favourite topic of the National Enquirer back in the 90s. Because we're led to believe that an alien species that has mastered the science of crossing interstellar distances does so in order to surreptitiously capture human beings just to fuck around with them, as far as we can tell. (laughs) Well, to experiment upon them. Maybe to put a few implants in there. I mean, you say experiment. There's nothing we can't do to ourselves these days. It's nothing like a a scientifically controlled experiment, is it? It's something you wouldn't get full marks on a a PhD thesis (laughs) for, isn't it? (laughs) Look, they suck you up into a big glowing salsa, they stick probes in you, and they're either... There's like the Kim Jong-un version where they just like release you vegetableized, Or they release you with suppressed memories. Or they don't release you at all and sort of extract your body fluids and chemical and electrical the, energy. Kind there's of so much to unpack here. Okay, this is 2009. It is 2009, yeah. Big budget. I can't believe Universal Studios made this, but they did. They splashed out 10 million for a starter movie back then. You know, 20 million today, there or thereabouts. It's quite a lot to lay on this fledgling director. I think it was his first major outing, wasn't it? And who is the director, Paul, says Rick, hoping that Paul's going to pronounce the director's name. Olatunde? Olatunde? his last name. Osun Sanmi. Because apparently he was presented as being in the movie, confusingly, but we'll oh, get God, to that yeah. later. Uh, there's so much to say about this. All that was going on there, I think. But we'll get to that later. But Olatunde, also his surname beginning with an O. The film opens in what I have to say is quite an unusual way, doesn't it? The lead actress... Well, we're getting there... Okay, we're getting there right away. Okay, yes. The lead actress... Mila Jokovic, who we know from, like, The Fifth Element, for instance. Famously so. You've seen that that film, Paul? Okay. Yeah, loved it. She strides towards the camera, breaking the fourth wall, looks straight down the camera. She explains that she is an actress, which we knew, taking part in a dramatisation, if you like, of what she claims is a true story Mm -hmm. set in 2000, sort of nine years earlier. Don't worry, though, because they're going to intersplice or interlay actual footage of the person she's acting at the same time as she's speaking. 
Yes, that's right. Some. There's real footage that, that they've sense? got recorded. Yeah, archival footage. Except, of course, and now this is what we have to get to straight away. The real footage isn't real footage. The real footage is another actress. Now, Paul, did you did you clock that okay. straight away? Yeah, and I, therefore I, I paused the movie. I, I just had to take time out <laughs> just to process. Can we just say the stupidity of all of that? I tried to give the movie the benefit of the doubt for the longest time. You'd be wrong in doing that, yeah. But it became impossible to suspend your disbelief, didn't it? Because the scenes that they made up were so... What's the word? But, you know, okay, you pitch that idea to me, maybe I'm sold. But all they did with it was, like, they have the actor who was acting the real scenes start the dialogue lying down on a psychiatrist's couch or whatever and then they just bleed her dialogue into the lead actress's dialogue and that's all they ever did with it it was so strange <laughs> but also those old footage things were so weird looking they, they could only have been like made up the scenes where she's supposedly talking in the here and now in 2009 with the director mm. as you say Olatunde and it's clear that she's heavily made up because she's supposed to be recovering from trauma and all kinds of things, which we'll no doubt go into, isn't she? But it just looked, looked kind of like really bad stage makeup. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Now, apparently, you know the term for when you bleed uh, image to image. That's a J-cut, is that right? Yeah? No, J-cut is all about what you do with the sound when you do a cut. Like overlapping the cut of the images. That's a J-cut. They, they J-cutted an actor acting the real person, J-cutting into the actor acting as an actor. <laughs> Several hundred times, for little or no reason, we have to say. So, yeah, I mean, they used everything in the 2009 lexicon of kind of... It was never found footage, was it? But they kind of imported all these found footage effects, i.e. No, hold on. Listen, found footage movies are also fake. I mean, the Blair Witch Project is also fake. Yeah. In that sense... They are. It's no different from the Blair Witch Project. Or, Or is it? Well, there's several things I've got to say about that, okay. They also used the kind of snowy static interference on the original yes. kind of when the apparitions True. or when the visitations happen. Of course, they used the grainy footage, which is very... They're led against each of those two ideas. But also, they had a postscript at the end of the movie. Yes. Now, that's a typical thing of, like, documentary-style, sort of drama documentary kind of takes on a found footage movie. I think in this instance, as well, they couldn't be bothered finishing <laughs> the movie. And they said, okay, let's just write the last two minutes of script up on the screen. The fourth thing I'm going to say about this is this pre, this forward, if you like, this spoken forward. I mean, we see this in one area of filmmaking, and that's pornography, huh? isn't it? You know, pornography in the time it was illegal always had to come with a moral, didn't it? Did it? Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I yeah. never saw that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the reason why they're also in the hay barn and that kind of thing. There had to be a story rather than just getting down to it. To get past the censors or to make the censors more amenable to their ideas, it would come with a moral. There's a moral to the story. Don't catch gonorrhea or something. All right, so they're actually trying to tell and, a story and the sex is an integral part of the story. So. Integral hmm. part of it, you see. So it's, it's erotic fiction. It's not. It's What's not that got to do with this? Part? I felt... <laughs> Well, I felt it was the same way, you know. Somehow, this this beginning was kind of like a little moral, a little moral introduction that you might see in pornography. It was a justification of the of the crap that was about to follow. Look, since you're speaking about morality, what is the morality of barefaced lying at the start of the film, where you know she comes on and says this is a true story? Exactly, it's like pornography. At no you know, point, I mean, at no point does it say the usual thing, which is you know all characters in this. Uh, yeah, based on uh, any any resemblance to real characters is coincidental blah 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 
based on true events, but highly fictionalised, largely based on true events or uh, no relation to real life. None of that, okay. What this movie did succeed in doing is angering the residents of Nome, was it? In Alaska, where it was set to an incredible degree. Because what facts was it based on? It's based on the fact that people go missing in the cold out there and freeze Yeah, people get drunk, wander off in the cold, get hypothermia and die. And here they are playing on that in just such a nasty way. So I can understand why people are out. But we could talk about the the whole morality of this all day, can we? Better explain what happens. So Mila Jokovic... And the other actress, whose name I can't remember, but supposedly real, are playing the role of Dr. Abigail Tyler, who is some kind of psychotherapist. In the North Alaskan town of Nome, as you say, N-O-M-E. We see her in some oldie psychiatrist session that's been recorded on video. Actually, Dr. Abby herself is seeing a psychotherapist because she's got PTSD, hasn't she? Now, did her husband just die? It was fairly recently, I think. So the idea is that she has experienced trauma from her husband's death, which in the session she has with the therapist, she is recounting or imagining or remembering that she was lying in bed with her husband and she sees him being stabbed by an assailant whose face she can't bring herself to recall or describe. And that was the cause of his death, we are told at that point. Which, by the way, is a, is a lie, even in the fiction of this film, it's not true. <laughs> so we've bookended with some sort of preamble, okay? The moral of this story is, no, but it's not okay. about morals. It's just like, this is real kind of thing. Then we get the bookend, or if you like, the epistolary form. It's kind of like almost a letter form where it's all set within the interview in the present day, yeah. 2009, with Mr. Olatunde, yeah? Who may or may not be the actual Olatunde. Don't know. And that's framed as us watching grainy footage. And then then we skip into, we head back to 2000, and that's when we find her in the psychiatrist's chair, herself a hypnotherapist or psychotherapist, undergoing this traumatic re-experiencing of her husband's death, stroke, suicide, potentially. the psychotherapist she's seeing is helping her to try and remember this guy's face using hypnosis. In fact, we see part of a hypnotic induction. Mm -hmm. Something which, by the way, you're not allowed to show yeah. on British television for reasons. Of course, this would be scandalous if it was a true story, which it isn't. It's all made up. And I suppose, though, because it's presented as true, should still be scandalous. Yeah. Because hypnotic induction is an infamously terrible way of getting people to remember things. And indeed, forms a basis of some real-world scandals, such as the satanic abuse kind of scandal which is a made-up confabulation brought about in part by hypnotising subjects and asking them to remember. The thing about hypnosis is it's very easy, because it's a state of heightened suggestibility, to suggest memories to your subject, something which actually Dr Abby does quite freely, and we'll come to it later, and I think her psychotherapy is doing because he's actually telling her to remember the guy's face a guy who we will discover later in the film doesn't exist is it a guy <laughs> but if under hypnosis you ask someone to visualize something as if it were a memory they will do so and the rather insidious thing about hypnosis is once they have to become a real memory yeah, yeah once they very clearly remembered it it will be then sort of, yeah, it, it will be, what's the word, crystallised in their mind like a memory. Well, there's a visceral to it. It's beyond daydreaming, isn't it? You're kind of in a 
brainwave state where it, it's a very visceral emotional experience and all that's tied to the cerebral imaginings of sound and sight and smell or whatever so it kind of becomes like a real core memory also by the very nature of hypnosis and also by the very nature of the way hypnotherapists get paid quite often these things are done over over several <laughs> sessions we yeah. won't go so far this session we'll come back next week just lodge that idea in your brain for a week and then yeah and then we'll, we'll reinforce it and rehearse it again that's re- yeah. rehearsal isn't it it's orienteering yeah. it's, it's taking a map and walking over, over and over know, again the mountains of somebody's mind somebody's memory mind, itself yeah, is an act of reconstruction right we're not video recorders where you can rewind and go and replay Your brain uses all kinds of different cues, like a smell or a sound or a particular word or something, and it builds back up, sort of top-down, what must have happened. If you were having eggs that morning, you must have got up at slightly earlier because you don't normally have eggs, etc. I mean, it's probably got thumbnails in there, but it has to squint and close its eyes, the brain. The brain closes its eyes and says, that's a thumbnail of eggs. It has keyframes, and then it fills in all the middle bits. Yeah, and then he does it, then he does his AI. Okay, create a really really good image of an egg, and you think, oh god, I'm seeing that egg. It must have looked like that. Well, it's not. It's just a recreation. That's right. Yeah. Your brain. And most of the time, these approximations and shortcuts are perfectly adequate for our everyday memories, for us to be pretty good at remembering things in the broadest sense. But if you abuse it with a bit of hypnotherapy, and by the way. It doesn't have to be hypnosis. It can just be the act of getting people to try to remember. These days, I think police are much better than they used to be. Police nowadays do receive training about interviewing witnesses so that they don't implant ideas. Because there are all kinds of instances of tests that psychologists have done where you you implant fake memories into sometimes dozens of people just by suggesting the wrong things. There was a very famous case. I can't remember. I mean... I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but I remember a very famous case about a woman who'd been sexually assaulted and she'd given a description to the police and the police had gone through the process of, you know, doing a photo fit and all of that stuff. And I think they may also have shown her pictures of subjects and eventually she'd seen a face that she felt matched. She became more and more convinced, I suppose, having seen this picture, that that was the guy. And then played that that face over in her mind. Associated it with the events of the night. This guy was convicted, went to prison, blah, blah, blah. You can imagine what what happens from here. It turned out that he couldn't have done it for all kinds of DNA-related reasons, and he wasn't at that location at the time. But this woman had become convinced that it was him, so that when Mm. she saw him in person, she would have sworn that it was him. It is suggestibility and suggestion, and what is hypnosis anyway? Someone in a heightened state of mental arousal because of their... Relaxation, yeah. yeah. Relaxation or arousal. Someone who's in an unusual state, like they're in a police station being interviewed after a traumatic incident. Suggestions can be easily added to that situation. All of which is a very lot to say about a made-up story about hypnotherapy. Even in this made-up story, they cannot use hypnosis ethically. (laughs) So what's great is she's taped all her hypnotherapy sessions, which was going to come in useful for this movie, isn't it? Because we can get replays of them throughout the movie. Yeah, now, of course. Length. I'm sure all psychotherapists videotape all their sessions because they're not sensitive <laughs> sensitive and private information <laughs> yeah. that they wouldn't want to fall into the wrong hands, are they? So her husband Will has been murdered. Okay, she's dealing with that in quite Paul, an I'll emotional stop way. Because I think you may have succumbed to oh. some suggestibility. Husband Will has died. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> has died, sorry. 
Okay. He's dead by his own hand or others. We don't quite know how. And she's dealing with that in a very kind of uh, emotionally mature way, in a very kind of a sex education mother way, as a psychotherapist or hypnotherapist would do. Pretty soon we meet her patients, don't we? And I forgot the name of the first one oh. and the second one. Do you know what? I've, I've, written, I've written down here uh, that a few... it's two months after oh. Will has died. Um, she flies back to Nome because you can't easily get to and from this place by road, I think is the idea, isn't it? Her own psychotherapist is in Anchorage or somewhere in a big city. She goes to this mm. little village. By the way, this whole village with all of the pine trees and stuff, that's not at all what that part of Alaska looks like. It would be like a barren... Oh. I don't think there are any trees, and there are very, very few trees because it's so cold. It's like above the, the snow line kind of thing. But you're right. She has got these patients who are coming to see her. Lots of them. Families, kids, mums, but two bo- two men, basically. And they both also say, all have strangely the same story to tell. Well, they have similarities, don't they? The first guy she interviews is Scott. Mm. He's having Scott, trouble sleeping, isn't he? He's waking up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep. And he mentions an owl at his window. A white owl at his window, staring for hours at end, it seems. Night after night. It's interesting that they've used an owl in this entirely fictional story of alien abduction because owls are often associated with sightings of paranormal events. In the, in, in the days of yore, they were associated with Athena, weren't they? What, the poster shop where you could get pictures of <laughs> tennis players showing their ass? Girls playing tennis. I should say girls playing tennis with their knickers stuck in their the tennis skirt. Or are you talking about the, the Greek god named after, named after the poster chain? The Greek god named after the, the chain, yeah. Sadly <laughs> defunct chain, yeah. Wisdom, isn't it? Is Athena the god of, goddess of wisdom so, yeah. or something? Yeah, something like that, yeah. It doesn't matter anymore, does it? I'm sure the ancient Greeks will forgive us for not knowing. But in any case, they all have the same story, white owl staring. And then some of them, do they remember the creatures attempt to enter their homes? Or not? Not really. Well, Scott mentions it persistently looking through his window, staring at him. And Mm -hmm. we start to cut to other patients. There's another guy called Tommy. There's a woman whose name I don't think we get. But one of them is saying, yeah, it's every night this week. And Tommy says, I think it came inside. I think he means the owl in the home. Yeah, Tommy. We see Dr. Abby asking very leading and suggestive questions, actually, which illustrates my point beautifully. Because one of them mentions an owl. I think Tommy says it comes inside. And in an instant, she's saying, is it leaning over you? <laughs> which is not anything like what he said. And the, the woman says something very revealing. She says, I can barely remember it. It's almost like it didn't happen, like it was a dream. There you go. Now, weirdly... Or perhaps tellingly, Abby's daughter is suffering from what they call a conversion disorder. That is to say, she has been blind since her father died. But she's got nothing organically wrong with her vision. It's like a shock reaction, I suppose, to the death of her father. Is that a real thing? I think it is a real thing, yeah, but it's rare. And can they actually see or they're convincing themselves they can't see? I mean, that's a very difficult question to answer, isn't it? I think there are people who they can find nothing wrong with their vision, but they don't respond as if they're, they're able to see. I mean, what, how do you diagnose at what level that's going on? Hot poker towards the eyes. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, if you've got no ethical boundaries, I suppose that's, that's appropriate, yeah. But no, you probably you shine a light in their eyes, don't you? See whether they flinch. Yes. But, I mean... For all I know, people who really are blind still might have some kind of response because it might be some kind of autonomic thing going on. And, of course, visual impairment, we say blind. A lot of visually impaired people are not 
completely blind, are they? They're, they can see things, but they can yeah, Partially blind. But they live in this amazing timber house in the middle of the forest, which, again, I, I read somewhere that it wasn't filmed in Alaska because it's nothing like what Alaska is. I think it was Norway or something they filmed on. be a bugger to eat, wouldn't it? Well, a timber-framed house, maybe. I don't know. The size it, of it. It, it was huge. Sure quite right. Yeah, they are huge. I think you probably downsize a little bit in Alaska. Her son is quite angry at mum, isn't, isn't he? Because... Yeah. I think he not blames her, but I don't think her son buys her bullshit, which we'll come to much later in the film. We've alluded to it already. We then get, apropos of nothing, a shot of an owl outside their house as the camera moves <laughs> around it in like 360 degrees. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> there you go. Pretty soon, we're back to the action. Isn't she called by the police saying, get over here now, we've got a hostage situation? I think that is a bit later. I think Ab- Abby has a look look through her recordings, doesn't she? And she's reviewing her case notes, and we see her talking about some weird events that Tommy reported. But ultimately, you're right. She does get waking up in the middle of the night. A 911 call. Dev, we have a wonderful hostage situation thing. Is it Tommy? It's Tommy. I think yeah. it's Tommy rather yeah. than Scott. Because Scott survives, doesn't he? We see Scott later in the movie. So it's Tommy, and he's there threatening to kill himself, and he's got his wife and kids hostage in the house. And then we get an amazing thing where they do a, a four-screen split. <laughs> so we see the old, original the, the tri- inverted commas footage. We see the dramatisation. Yes. And then we see some face close-ups of a policeman shouting and, you know, maybe Abby's response. So we got four things going on. I think they're trying to be so, like, I don't know what Hill Street's, Hill Street's Blues about, what they do in the cinematography, but it's just, it doesn't particularly work, does it? The sheriff has called Abby because Tommy asked for her. Tommy is holding right. his family at gunpoint, and he's saying, if you saw what I saw, you would understand. And then he utters some language that is incomprehensible, not English, apparently, at which point he kills his family and then himself. Now, here we've got a pivotal plot moment. This is when the sheriff kind of starts to turn on Abby, Abby and say, look, you're the last person that he had contact with yesterday or the day before. It's obvious that your hypnotherapy is causing severe distress kind of thing. A lot, a lot of the movie hinges on this sheriff's Absolutely. He says, say. had you not hypnotised him, do you think he would have done this? And she says, oh, that is a ridiculous mm. and offensive question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably an ignorant question. I'm not sure it's offensive. There's kind of a hokum kind of like sheriff suspicion going on around the, the back of this movie, and it's essential for what happens in the Well, plot, she's right? claiming to the cops that he was suppressing something. This is the idea of suppressed memory, which the whole satanic abuse thing was based on, and which frequently comes up when people get hypnotised to recover memories. There's no evidence that there is any such thing as suppressed memories. I think we all know some people have experiences that they're not all that ready or willing to talk about that may be traumatic to them. But that's obviously quite different from them not remembering them. (laughs) There's just no evidence that suppressed memory is a thing. When you hear people talking about suppressed memories, like kids who have been abused but can't remember it because they suppressed it, we should be very suspicious of those things because all that's happening is they're having these ideas implanted in them by hypnotic induction. Or even by life-size dolls. Yeah. I was working in a school in Korea, and it was in a town that had a particular problem with with CSA. So in the kind of nursery section, kindergarten section, which was tied to the school, because I was in the primary school, they said, oh, Paul, go and do some, $25 an hour, go and do some English with the kindergartners once, twice a week. 
And so then I went in there, you know, and of course there's always three or four teachers with about 12 kids, because they're just wild, aren't they, kids, kids that age. Uh, but incredibly, they had the the real life-size dolls. <laughs> Various sort of stages okay. of development. With really quite impressive appendages of male and female varieties. I said, what are they there for? So, well, you know, so that they can report any CSA that goes on. That's pretty so, creepy. They've kind, of spoiled, they've kind of spoiled the soup, haven't they, at this point? Because all the children now would know what adults and teenagers look like in detail. Whereas prior to putting those dolls in front of all the children... Only some of them would have that information. Does that and, make sense? And I suppose they might also know that if they make some kind of accusation, something will happen. I think what you might be suggesting is that doing this might actually what foment reports that may or may not be be real. Well, I mean, there was a definite problem in the area with that. Are you sure, or was it uh, was it all just the fact that these dolls had arrived? <laughs> I think the dolls had arrived after they'd established that there was there is a problem in some in, in poorer towns in Korea. With, yeah. Early teenagers frequenting uh, Noribang, you know, and getting, being inducted into child sorry, sex trafficking. I, I, maybe I don't want to know the answer to this, but what's Noribang? KTV. KTV. Sorry, that helps the karaoke TV. Karaoke ah, bars. Ah, okay. Okay. Normally, I would have thought a place where you go to sing badly, but you're, clearly something else is going on there, I guess. They mostly are, but again, just like the hairdressers <laughs> in China, you know. A pink, a pink rotating pole might be a pink rotating pole, or it might be an indication of prostitution. Right. It's like the toy in a Kellogg's Kellogg's cereal. You never actually know. Is it that thing where could be over, could be overboard, could be underground, could be? Is it that thing where they have like female dancers in the club, and you're supposed to buy flowers? They could just be female dancers. They could just be female dancers. There right. are clubs, you know, that sell hostesses that will just drink right. beer with you. Okay. So. Okay. So it sounds very confusing. Again, so. There's, there's, well, there's no way to know unless you've been there before. You know what kind of club it is, or what kind of hairdresser it is, or or what kind of case it is. <laughs> All right. Oh, Richard's booking <laughs> tickets right now. Sorry, no, no, go on. Sorry. The cop orders her to stop her studies that she's conducting in the members of the village who are having these effects. Shortly afterwards, her psychotherapist flies in himself to Nome from wherever he lives. Because he's worried about her. He's heard about all of this. He has a whispered conversation with her, suggesting she goes on a sabbatical, maybe take some time off. She declines. He's going to stay in Nome for a bit and look out for her, really, maybe work with her, make sure nothing else untoward happens. No more of her patients kill themselves and their whole family, say. So he is our resident intellectual sceptic, isn't he? Sort of, yes. Yeah. But he's very ineffective. <laughs> and later on when he sees things levitating, he's kind of he's kind of won over, isn't he, really? Uh, yes. In part, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now Steve comes back to Abby. I think he's asking to be hypnotized, or his wife is asking him to be hypnotized. That's right, yeah. Scotty, you mean, yeah. Scotty. Or Steve. Uh, Scott know. or Steve, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Scott, yes, yeah. Because apparently this is the second suicide in a couple of months. That's a clue, isn't it, actually, if you think about it? I hadn't picked go. up on that the first time, but it's clearly a clue. So I was wondering who the second one was. <laughs> Abby is initially reluctant, of course, because the cops have told us to stop all this nonsense. But her shrink, who's called Dr Campos, if I remember correctly. Dr Campos, yeah. He is going to observe the session. On that basis, she decides she'll go ahead with it. So she does a, another hypnosis. With Scott, but before then, hasn't she had a tape off her secretary or... I don't think... No, I don't think that happens yet. Okay, sorry. But again, she does a hypnotic induction on Scott 
And straight in there, she's like, tell me about the owl. I mean, I don't think he's even got to the point of saying there was an owl. So now there's definitely an owl. <laughs> and then he's saying that somebody is outside the door and Scott is convulsing. And you see it again on the dramatic reconstruction and on the grainy video, apparently, from the session. Nice thing to repeat that, wasn't it? Just in case you missed uh, it. After he's brought out the trance he throws up, apparently he's just been eating noodles, trans noodles. And he says something like, they're not from here. And he says he remembers the smell like a putrid cinnamon. So Scott leaves and I think Abby asks if Dr. Campos, if he believes in abduction theories. And he says, of course, you know, people go missing. We put them on milk cartons all the time. She says, no, no, don't mean that kind of abduction with a white van. Somebody says over 11 million people who have reported seeing or know someone who has seen a UFO. And I just want to point out the big difference between being a witness to a UFO or knowing someone who's seen a UFO. <laughs> How you might easily get to 11 million. <laughs> if you include anyone you've ever heard of who's said that they've seen one. <laughs> Anybody who's read the uh, Daily Sports or the National Enquirer. Yeah. Do you remember the Daily Sports? I do remember the Daily Sport. I don't know what it was for. It very quickly became the Sunday Sport. Well, it, it was like a British version of the National Enquirer, wasn't it? It was full of alien right. abduction stories. I mean, I was not aware of the National Enquirer, of course, before... I'd seen the Daily Sport and the Sunday Sport, so I had no understanding of where they got the crazy ideas from. But I guess you must be right. It's made up stories for, for clout, isn't it, basically? Yeah. It's at this point that her assistant comes in. She was ah, transcribing tapes that Abby had given her. And she uses her tapes not only in the sessions to record sensitive details of her subjects, but also as a note-taking format. You know, <laughs> as I'm sure people did in 2000 and. Well, 2000. Apparently she'd left it running one night after dictating her thoughts and falling asleep. The PA hears her breathing as she falls asleep or snoring. And then she hears the door squeaking open. And then she hears blood-curdling screams and a distorted voice saying something unintelligible is left on this tape. What would be good would be to contact uh, an ancient language specialist, wouldn't it, to find out about this? <laughs> be the first thing you do, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Awolo Odasami comes along and he says, I happen to be an expert in ancient languages. Ancient Sumerian. Languages ancient Sumerian. of the Sumerian, you know, Anatolian, Hittite. This is definitely Sumerian. Although he says, we haven't actually got a complete lexicon. Or in fact, we don't actually know what some of the phonetic symbols mean. And yeah, he's able to translate really quite complicated sentences with words like courage and honour and betrayal. As far as I was aware, Sumerian, you know, exists in cuneiform form. We haven't really fully decoded it. We can guess Very few tape recordings exist, I hear. Very few tape recordings exist. <laughs> to construct it phonetically is largely a guess game. With 30 or 40% error in even the kind of vowels and vowel sounds, certainly we don't really know about the contents because like all the old Indo-European languages nasalization, you know, as in the Scottish loch, all tapping, you know, like as in an Indian sort of D instead of T, you know. Consonants were very varied and very sophisticated. And we just got no real idea about how it's pronounced. But he's pretty sure it's Sumerian. So well done there. I mean, of course, it stands to reason you'd easily be able to decipher something recorded on a compact cassette on a dictaphone lying <laughs> on a bed next to... It's Sumerian, it's, yes. It's a heavily it's distorted voice, which they decide sounds non-human. Dr. Campos says, hang on, let's not jump to conclusions. He, he, he puts up a fight, doesn't he? <laughs> he fights his corner, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, this might have been dubbed over, which is a fair point. 
He said, wait a minute, you know, the quality of the dictaphone, in any case, would make you render a human voice sound like this. But he kind of gives up, doesn't he, really, making his points. And of course, at this point, our Sumerian... Our a Sumerian skeptic. expert comes out with some of the ancient alien bullshit. Oh, we, well, no, we get a whole sort of little little yeah, montage yeah. of it, don't we? Any carving that looks remotely like, phallic must be a rocket. It's like 11.30 at night on National Geographic Channel, isn't it? We get a whole documentary there. Any person with, like, a, a circle around their head is clearly an astronaut, not like a halo or a highlight. Or a garland, even. We've, we've seen this all before, of course. But there we are. I think Campos fights back again at this point, doesn't he? He says, do you honestly believe you were forcibly removed from your bedroom by members of an alien race? Great question. Powerful point. Good question, you know. Say it. So that's when we get a call now from what? Scott or Steve. I don't Is it Scott or Steve? Scott or Steve. It could have been Scott or Steve. It doesn't really matter, does it? The male, the male patients are all very similar, except one's killed themselves and the other's haven't. His wife, Cindy, is calling anyway. So all three of them yeah. go there. He comes in, he says, wait a minute, there was no owl. <laughs> No, this is where they find him in bed, sort of sweating. He's got a bruise on his upper arm, which is a bit triangular. I mean, obviously no normal mechanism could make a triangular bruise. It's clearly alien, isn't it? He's screaming that he has to get it out of his head. I think Abby hypnotised him at this point. So she goes to his home, is that right? They're all, all three of them have gone there. Yeah, so he's the one that says, actually, I was lying, there was no owl, but there were them instead. Ah, yes, I see. Tension is building in this moment. No, she does hypnosis really quickly. What happens, Rich? We see the reconstruction. We see he springs up in bed sort of 90 degrees, like from his hips immediately. He moans, and then he starts levitating. He lifts off the bed. But the footage <laughs> from purporting to be original footage, it goes staticky grainy, doesn't it? The, the image cuts out just at the point yes. where he starts levitating. Obviously, the video doesn't pick up this bit. We only have their word for it, don't we, in this fictional account of yeah. this fictional story, that this is really what happened in the fiction of 2000. Now, is he speaking in tongues to Abby? I think he is, isn't he? Which we can assume Sumerian. now is Sumerian. Sumerian identified. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what? I mean, Campos is going to be convinced at this point because with his own eyes, he's seen a man levitating and speaking in ancient Sumerian. Abby immediately goes home, doesn't she? She starts packing to go to North Carolina. She's had it. The kids are all upset. She's had it and she knows... She knows that boss hog, that sheriff, whatever his name, is going to be there, being suspicious and blaming it all on her. Which, you know, to be fair, it doesn't look good for her, well, does it? Well, the cop arrives, because it turns out that Scott is now paralysed from the neck down. <laughs> broke his back during this hypnosis. <laughs> obviously bad fall. And they've got know, no I mean. video evidence to demonstrate what happened, so he arrests her, understandably. Despite her having two witnesses and therefore two alibis, but there Dr. Go. Campos is vouching for her. He goes there, doesn't he? So the cop puts her yeah. under house arrest as a sort of compromise, and he stations yeah. a normal cop outside in a car. Now, is this the dramatic moment where her son turns against her? Is that later? I think, yeah, they're taking her son away, I think. Something he doesn't want to stay with her anyway, doesn't he, I think, sure. at that point. The yeah. cops are interviewing Campos and Odusami, and... These interview scenes reminded me... Have you seen the Saturday Night Live sketch about the alien alien abductions? Okay, it's worth taking just five minutes to watch this. YouTube. SNL abduction. I will send it to you on... There we go, it's on chat. And you, Miss Rafferty? Wow. What floor were you guys on? I woke up in a dirty metal dome and... Uh... Forty little grey aliens watched me pee in a steel bowl. <laughs> and I took the bowl, walked out. 
So there we go. I couldn't help but think of that when they're doing these all these bloody interviews. But that night, Paul, the cop on duty outside Abby's house, he sees something, doesn't he? I'm glad you took the story because I kind of stopped watching at this point. Although this bit I do remember. It's a big black triangle, but I can't... I, I tried to pause it. I couldn't see where the black triangle was, Richard. Was it just the house itself or what? Or is it all supposed to be grainy footage? Because, again, we, we, we have a quadrangle of... Yeah, we don't really see what he sees, I don't think. We see his dash cam footage. Oh. Did they have dash cams in 2000? Anyway, we see his dash cam footage, and it's just no, sh- showing static noise. But we get the audio of him apparently seeing something. Something flying, taking them, he said. And he says, send backup. Obviously, the sheriff's not right impressed by all of this. The sheriff arrives to find the daughter, the, the one who had the sort of blindness condition. She's gone. Have you been abducted yet? Oh, this is where he has some really turns against her. Uh, and he says, you're making it all up. I can't, don't want to live with you. And he's removed from her custody. That's right, because Abby is claiming a beam of light took her daughter through the ceiling. Now, wait a minute. Wasn't her psychiatrist in that house at the same time? No, I don't think he's staying with her. Oh, he wasn't staying with but her. But she calls Campos and Odusami so that they'll hypnotise her. In a hypnosis, she sees an owl looking down at her, smiling like owls do. I don't know. We were kind of hinted that there are shadowy figures entering the room, and she's screaming, obviously, whilst this is happening. We then see her, like, in a sort of abduction situation with some kind of spinning machine behind her, injecting her with something. As she's recounting all of this in the hypnosis, she's kind of possessed. She's using this strange voice, and she's speaking ancient Sumerian. <laughs> Matter of fact, now can I, just, can I just interject here? Like the fact that it's sort of semi-found mm. footage, yeah, means that they can't ever go first person. You know, with a bigger budget, we could have seen what she was seeing because we could have recreated. Recreate we could have gone first person and seen what she mm. was seeing, couldn't we? But their decision to make it grainy and kind of real means we. Well, can't it do is that. a reenactment. So. They could have pretended so to it, show. It, 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 no, we could have actually gone into what she was seeing kind of thing, you know what I'm saying? We could have gone first person into what she actually yeah. saw. Yeah, But we can't do that because it's all based on found footage. No, well, this bit is kind of, There's no kind found of footage of her being abducted. No, no, there isn't, no. But it's all kind of based on the idea. We're going to play the real audio and kind of link that to our acting right. kind of thing. So that kind of limits them. It kind of puts them in, in, in you know... So they've got the audio of the session where she's recounting it and we're seeing images that they're recreating yes. from her. Yeah. Recreate. It doesn't make a lot of sense, any. <laughs> so, in later interviews, matter. apparently, she claims that all three of them, presumably her and her son, were all abducted that night. But she winds up anyway in a hospital, obviously. And the sheriff comes in. He shows a picture of her husband, Will, after his death, with a bullet wound to his temple. Apparently, he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And she's been, I don't know, what, assuming, pretending, confabulating that he'd been stabbed while she was sleeping in bed next to him. She made it all up because he'd killed himself. When do we get the alien presence actually sending her a message about her daughter, Ashley? During the hypnosis, isn't it? We get, we get real-time translation of the Sumerian, like... And it comes out, like, on the text as some sort of English, like... I, I am, am God, yeah. Eternal. I am God. I don't know that we ever hear what happens to Ashley. Because, obviously, the sheriff is keen to find that out. I mean, this is the end of the film, isn't it? In the end, as you say, we get a series of where-are-they-nows... All about these made-up characters. Well, she's got one more revelation. She claims that during the, the hypnosis afterwards, 
that she, Campos, and the language expert all were abducted too. Oh, I thought. Oh, right, I thought she was saying that her son and her mm. were. Oh, no. When she says the three of them, she means right. her, Campos, the her psychiatrist, and Odasami, the language expert. Except those two don't remember mm. any of it. Okay. So she wakes up in hospital, and that's when we get the denouement. Okay, that's when we get the suspicious sergeant or policeman spotting everything. Okay, because now she's got people on her side. Even although the language, it's, the language expert can't remember being abducted. Maybe he's going to come on side after all that. Yeah, certainly her psychiatrist on her side. Except he's got to throw a spanner into the works, and that is her husband's death, isn't it? Yeah. So she's in the hospital bed, and the police officer's like saying, "Can you tell me how your husband yes, died?" That's right. She says, oh, well, he got killed. Obviously, she means by a vicious alien entity. He says, no, no, I'm going to show you something really terrifying now. It wasn't that terrifying. It was a gun and a bullet in the side, of, you know, a bullet hole in the side of his head. He committed suicide, the sergeant says. You're delusional. How can we expect to believe you about anything How indeed. about your husband's death? She has no chance of proving what is quite difficult to prove anyway. It's a bit of a strange way to wrap up this whole pretend story, isn't it? Because it... <laughs> It's giving it a, a strong yeah. out to the sceptics, but it's not a real story, so we didn't need it anyway. So maybe he's trying to say that we should be sceptical about these stories because none of them are real. I don't know. I mean, as you say, at the very end, we get a series of where are they now's text about each character. <laughs> they and could be bothered. We also yeah. see, uh, <laughs> they mention that there are a lot of disappearances in the Gnome area, as we've said. Gnome, Alaska. And as you mentioned, the locals were quite upset about this because it's capitalising on the tragic tragic disappearances, accidental, presumably, disappearances of people in the wilderness there for the purposes of this piece of entertainment. <laughs> I mean, just to be completely clear, right, in case it isn't, this character, Dr. Abby, is not real. None of the people in this film are real people. Absolutely not. There's no, no. There's nothing. There's not based on any... Sh- any shred of real events. So is it right for a film to do this, to pretend that it's a true story when it's not? I mean, it's not like the only film that does that trick. Plenty of films pretend that are based on a true story. Or It's okay to have, like, you know, realistic shooting and found footage and to take us into an event as if it was real. But I think it's another thing to do that and then say, oh, by the way, this is an actor and this is the actor playing the real person who we're going to show you now. I mean, they're taking mm. it to another level, aren't they? It's deceptive. It's deceptive. Is it supposed to make it scarier? I suppose it is. No, it's it's because they've got a weak plot, and so they want to kind of firm it up, don't they? With with lies, basically. It's disingenuous at best. You know, you know, Paranormal Activity, where there's endless shots of footage from the cameras that they set up, with not much going on, I guess, for quite a lot of it, just day to day stuff. And then, of course, you get the weird things start happening. The door opens or the blanket gets lifted up. You know, it's presented as real, isn't it, though, paranormal activity? It does pretend a little bit. Within the context of it, within the context of everybody knowing that it's just a piece of film fiction. And as I've mentioned, Blair Witch pretends to be real, even to the extent that a lot of the marketing and buzz around the film that they whipped up, they were trying to present it as real. Because it makes it scarier, no doubt. It, it makes it scarier to pretend that it's real. Yeah. But I guess everybody knew that it wasn't. I don't know. I'm struggling to figure out whether or not they've gone too far. They've overstepped the bounds. They've gone too far here. I'll, no, they've overstepped the bounds here in terms of how they're presenting documentary, how they're presenting fictionalisation 
of a fictionalised documentary. And it's that double step here that makes you believe that the documentary, such as they're presenting, is not fictionalised, but it's actually real. It's really misleading, you know. Disingenuous at best. Dangerous the psychologist, Chris, Fr- Chris French, who I've, who I've met, and he's been to QED many times. He was there last this year, last year. He said of this film, the reason he found this film so disturbing was because experience shows that no matter how obvious a hoax may be to those capable of critical thinking, there will always be many who will accept it at face value. The film's claims to be based on true events. But none of these events actually occurred. None of the archival footage was real. And Dr. Abigail Taylor never existed, as we've said. So, yeah, I mean, he seems to agree. On the back of this, though, Paul, I did go off watching some more documentaries on Netflix. Uh, Because the thing is, I'm on holiday. So I can just binge watch TV programs over Christmas. So I watched on Netflix and on Amazon Prime, I watched something called the Chill Bolton Experience or Phenomena or something. That was about Not a, heard of it. a weird crop circle that appeared near a radio observatory in Chill Bolton. And it was a crop circle which consisted of, first of all, an image of Carl Sagan, sort of rendered newspaper style, And also an image of the digital signal the Arcebo telescope sent out, which was sort of like a pixel art version of like a man and DNA and where the Earth is and stuff like that. But with some subtle changes where carbon, the element that we were indicating was what we are based on, had been changed to silicon and the DNA strand had a double or an extra helix on it, maybe a triple helix. And the little stick figure of a person had an alien head on it. And apparently they lived on four of their planets. Now, I thought the whole crop circle thing had been debunked years ago by two blokes who said that they had gone around making a lot of crop circles. But there we are. It's an interesting documentary experience. There was another one that I watched called Encounters, which was perhaps a bit more balanced. I think it was four episodes where they went through different alien encounters and investigated them and talked about them. One of them, which happened to school kids in Zimbabwe, for instance, where all the kids are reported seeing something weird. Sorry, I've just searched up that image of yeah. Carl Sagan, the crop circle. It's a wonderful <laughs> pixelised image, isn't it? It's really well done. You've got I to admire the artistry. Uh, I mean, yeah, crop circle trampling has come on in leaps and bounds since since they first took a plank and a rope out into a field. Amazing, amazing. Driving a fiesta around several times in a field, yeah. Probably how it started off. Yeah, but in Zimbabwe, there's school kids were in the backfield watching over the countryside and they started reporting they'd seen this alien or something, something weird, a spaceship or something. But at one point, they interview a kid who'd who was now grown, of course, an adult. He was a kid at the time. And he said, yeah, I just made it up. I just said that I saw an alien. And then everyone (laughs) around me said that they could see it. And ever since then, they've always claimed that they saw an alien. But I I just made it up from the start. It happened to me at at primary school. We all saw Santa in the sky. (laughs) And you want to believe it, that you start seeing him. Kids Kids' minds are able to actively hallucinate, wantonly hallucinate more than we're able to. They can affect their visual field and their... Their inner kind of imaginary field are much more connected, aren't they? Or less. The pressures of time haven't haven't separated those functions quite as much, have they? So, are you trying to tell us, Paul, perhaps secretly that Santa Claus maybe doesn't exist? I say erroneously. I uh, yes, telling young listeners, erroneously, I, I assumed that Santa didn't exist after I realised. Merry Christmas, everyone! <laughs> just because we didn't see Santa. Just because we didn't see Santa it doesn't mean doesn't he doesn't, doesn't come into your bedroom Merry at night Christmas. and. 
a check for whether or not you, you've Drunk. been a good, a good child. Drunk on sherry. <laughs> no reason to worry. Smell your socks and put things in them. Right, okay, so I guess we're done with this. With the dusting off of the hands. I don't know what or how to summarise Well, we score the acting, first of all. Difficult to do. Like, the decision to base everything around camera angles that existed or voice tapes that existed meant they were very limited to what they could do. The actors were forced to breathe life. Mila Jokovic did an amazing job, I thought. Yeah, she did a good job. But, however, what she was asked to do just wasn't good enough in itself. So, for me, I can only give the acting 6.5. Yeah, I didn't find the original footage... That's casting no dispersions on the actors themselves. I didn't find the original footage stuff to be very convincing at all. Conducive to any kind of drama, really, yeah. I think the director is supposed to be in interviews with the real Abigail in some of the sequences, and nothing about that was convincing. The director, who who presumably is not an actor himself, was hopeless, and I don't think she was being given much to work with either. So So for Miller's stand-up job in trying to do this... I mean, I've got to give it a seven overall at best, I think. Just things that brought it down, I thought, was like the real Abby, the actor playing the yes. reenacted real Abby. She had this kind of sleepy way of pretending that she was. she's supposed to be suffering from hypnosis. PTSD, yeah. I know, but it wasn't. Con- I know, but it, it, it didn't Quite. convince. It wasn't so, great. So. 6.5. Next category. Oh, God. <laughs> the plot. Look. The enveloping, you know, the director being the director, the presenter in an interview where we segue into, and then the the little wrapping of the lead actor saying, I'm an actor and what follows is not acting. And then the other rapper, there's another rapper too. Oh, and then of course the fact we had both the events and the real, the supposed, the invented real life footage of the events. This was all to disguise a weak plot. Uh, I just, no, the plot was terrible for the twist at the end that her husband had in fact committed suicide and not killed himself wasn't convincing as to It's a, a step too far, why, isn't it? You know, she would or wouldn't be believed. If you're going to go to the extent of setting up this entire, like, keyfabe, that this whole thing is real, but at the end you're going yes. to give an out, like, throw a bone to the sceptics or something by saying, well, actually, she's crazy. Well, make it a good yeah, bone. It, it's, it's pointless. You don't do both. Not just a sergeant's suspicion. Like Make her the murderer. Before. Yeah. <laughs> we want resolution. We want clear outcomes, at least from the perspective of the director. None of that was provided. It wasn't left on a cliffhanger. There was no kind of ponderous moment where we had to think, oh, well, could it have, would it have, should it? So a four for me. I'm sorry. I don't really. I'm going to go three. Hold's not truck with me. A three? Oh, gosh. I think we have to do Worse fear factor. Okay. I think it's trying right. to be frightening. Yeah, and this really fell down too. The the scene where she does the hypnosis on Scott and he rises into the air, that is so exorcist, isn't it? It just didn't scare though, did it? It wasn't remotely scary. I don't know whether I would have been scared when I was more credulous of these things. But as soon as you figure out, as soon as you figure out that they've made a whole thing up, it makes a nonsense of it, doesn't it? It makes them look. It makes it look like a lot of hard work for very little effort. You don't, by the way. At no point do we see yeah. any alien, as I suppose the conclusion of the film proves. There pro- probably isn't any alien. There's just a bunch of people shooting themselves mm. and their families for no good reason. It's yeah. It's not frightening, so I have to give it a three for fear factor. <laughs> Paul, what did you give it? I gave it a two. Do we have another category? No, I can't be bothered. I mean, there is, like, oh, psychological God. insight or whatever. 
Let's not just I mean, let's put that into a joke. Listen, let's put all the washing and put it into one basket. Right. We've done a bunch of found footage for Kind of, sort of. I don't buy it. I, I don't like it. I think it goes too far. You don't want to tarnish the found footage reputation by including this. I understand and I agree completely. Okay, so on the base of those three scores and anything else you want to throw in the pot, Richard, what would you score it? I'm going to score it a 3.5. I'm sorry. This is our <laughs> Christmas turkey. I like Mila Jokovic. She's okay in this. Mm. I'll give it a four, but it's not a recommend by any stretch. I think it's a bit less than that. We did promise that when it was released straight to mm. Netflix, the big budget Zack Snyder film, Rebel Moon, part one. I can't remember what the subtitle is. And we were going to review that. So we will do that maybe a week late, but no matter, it'll still be on Netflix. So do find out next week. Is it going to be a New Year hit or is it going to be more Christmas turkey <laughs> leftovers? Yeah. Until then, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye-bye.